Welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. I'm Braxton Hunter, and this is Trinity Radio. And today we're going to be talking primarily about doubt, but also faith and apologetics. Stick with me. They don't need no stinking apologetics. And once you start talking uh, apologetics and and bringing up issues that they had no clue about prior, they say, well, wait a minute, I should be worried about this? I thought everything was great. Do you think that in our culture, with our television programs, with our movies, with our music, do you really believe that people are not haven't thought about these things or haven't encountered the challenges to the Christian faith? One of the best arguments you guys have got is the problem of suffering. Christians will think about that without ever encountering a secular message ever. And bringing up issues that they had no clue about prior. Of course these people know there are challenges. Recently a pretty amazing thing when like every Christian YouTuber you can imagine was in one room, one place together answering questions from their subscribers. Really great discussion. And internet YouTuber, atheist YouTuber Pine Creek, whose real name is Doug, did an episode on it. And I actually found something that Doug said to be pretty close to right. Um, Doug's not always wrong, you know, and uh, in this case, I think he found something that I think I can sympathize with, if not outright agree with. At least he's going to get maybe half credit. So let's listen to what Doug has to say to set the stage for the show. Oh, let me get the microphone here. So I have another question from, his name is Anthony Rowden. He's actually one of my patrons. So thank you so much, Anthony, for supporting me. As for anyone, how do we explain to others, especially in the church, the importance of apologetics. It seems there's a lot of resistance to it. It seems like there's... What? What? There's resistance to apologetics? Say it isn't so. Why? Why in the world would there be resistance to apologetics? Can any Christian answer that for me? Let me take a shot at it, shall we? (laughs) I think there's a resistance to apologetics because some pastors and preachers rightly admit that for some Christians, apologetics leads them away from Christ. I think a lot of preachers and elders rightly say that apologetics might be a little too academic for the average Christian, and they just love Jesus. Now, those are actually two different things. Uh, We're going to set aside the question of whether academics, uh, whether it's too academic or whether preachers think it's too academic, because that's really not directly relevant to what we're talking about here. That may well be true, okay? That may be the case, um, and those pastors and preachers, most of them don't feel that way. And I'm going to tell you how I know that in just a second. Um, But I think he's on to something here when he says there is a fear that if we present Christian apologetics, that by virtue of doing that, we're going to make it clear what the criticisms of Christianity are so that people may... You know, have uh, you know, have doubt engendered in them. They may not have that maximal certainty that we want them to have, and so there's a little bit of a fear there. Now, um, he says that pastors admit this, and I don't think that that's true. And one of the reasons I can say that I don't think that's true, and I don't think most pastors would say that um, it's too academic, is that I recently engaged in my doctoral uh, project and major writing project for. The, um, for the doctoral program that I'm in the midst of. For uh, a group of um, church people who are lay church people, ranging in age from 24 to, I think it was like 80-something, was, was the oldest, men and women. And, uh, and, and we did this, this project. And, and I've done things like that um, all over 
the southeastern United States. And so then I, we did a pretest and a post-test to ask them 10 questions that have to do with their confidence in um, having worldview conversations with other people, their knowledge of apologetics, their awareness of what Christian apologetics is all about, the arguments that are used, and things like that. So it had to do with having meaningful conversations with people uh, with others about worldview issues and their ability to articulate um, and their awareness of these um, arguments and things like like that. So, so I did this. We did a pretest and a post-test, and so we were going to gauge. Did this um, eight-hour seminar basically move the needle in terms of their confidence and their competence in doing this? And so um, it was a success. We saw a, a great amount of improvement. The whole thing has been recorded. The whole thing has been written up. We had uh, cameras and mics on it. Um, it's being overseen by a group of um, professors at an accredited university. Who so, so there's no question about the authenticity of this or whether it was done right and all that sort of thing. There's going to be an oral. I have to go defend this orally and, and all that sort of thing. And uh, part of what I did for that was, in addition to that, I sent out questionnaires to, every, to a number of pastors that represent every major region of the United States and several countries outside of the United States of various denominations, I think it was like eight or nine denominations of Christianity and churches of all sizes. And what this resulted in was their answers to what they suspect to be true about the people in their church. Uh, none of them, none of them admitted that, uh, not a single one admitted that they thought that apologetics could be dangerous for their people or cause them to doubt. 100% of them said that they thought that apologetics was incredibly important or at least very important to the people in their churches. Um, and uh, I, I think maybe one or two of them did say something like that it might be too academic, but most of them thought that their people, I think all of them thought their people could grasp the concepts if they really tried or really wanted to. It's more an issue of apathy than anything else is what they suspected was true of the people. So I actually have done actual real-world research on this, and I don't know anyone else uh, personally who has done that level of research on this very issue, so I feel like I can speak to it. And during the reading and studying for that, I, I read a book called um, uh, 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 The Benefit of the Doubt by Greg Boyd. Some of you will know who Greg Boyd is. And um, I actually think he said something very similar, though, to even though pastors, I don't think, would admit what he just said, do they think that privately in the privacy of their own thoughts, that if I present this stuff, my people are going to start doubting? Um, maybe, but that would be mere speculation. And I think Pine Creek would admit that he's just speculating there. But I do think it probably is the case that for some of the people in the pews, and I think I have some data that might suggest this, <coughs> that it may be the case that that is why some of them might be trepidatious about having some of these worldview conversations is because they they realize that their hands might get dirty when they do apologetics and that they perhaps would experience some level of doubt. And I think that that is a relevant point that shouldn't be missed. Um, if you're young in the faith and, and you've, you've just become a Christian not too long ago, you should be aware that listening to a bunch of atheist voices or even Christian voices representing what the atheist might say um, that can engender a, a certain amount of doubt, and that should be, <clears throat> you'll have to forgive me, I'm still getting over um, the flu, I think, but uh, that can engender a certain amount of doubt, and so be aware of that. But this brings us to a, a serious problem. One of the reasons why it may be the case that Christians are not more engaging in Christian apologetics, uh, some, lay, some in the laity are not learning these things and willing to have conversations with people, is because of this fear. And in the book, uh, uh, benefit of the Doubt by Greg Boyd, he talks about this, and, and 
um, kind of explains the fact that what has happened in American evangelicalism, unfortunately, um, ha, ha, you know, every denomination, there are various denominations of Christianity, but even though that's true, and even though they all have their specific doctrinal kind of sacred cows, uh, there are certain fears that because of the stakes, man, the stakes in this thing are so high that some people are still going to have certain concerns and fears and doubts uh, come up just on, doc- on a doctrinal level. So think about this. <clears throat> in the Southern Baptist world, about the only thing left in Southern Baptist life that is like a staple of being a Southern Baptist, that if you run into 10 Southern Baptists, there's a good chance that all 10 of them are going to have this, and that is the belief in eternal security, the doctrine of eternal security, more commonly known as the once saved, always saved doctrine, that if you really become a Christian, you cannot lose that salvation, and you cannot forfeit that salvation, and you cannot walk away, you will not walk away from that salvation if you really got saved. So once you're saved, you're always saved, eternal security like that. Okay, that is a staple of Southern Baptist life, and there are Presbyterian churches that are that way. But I guarantee you there are people in every denomination, including the Southern Baptist Church and the Presbyterian denominations, who sit out there in the pews and listen to a hellfire and brimstone sermon and are terrified that they might have lost their salvation because of some sinful thing they did or because they're not doing enough for God. Now, why, why is that? Is that because they don't hold that doctrinal position? No, they might hold the doctrinal position of eternal security, but it is so the stakes are so high that they have this, this fear. Similarly, and here's where it comes back around to Doug, um, similarly, <clears throat> it is often the case that people equate whether or not they're a true Christian, unfortunately, with the strength of their certainty about the truth of Christianity. So um, they, they think, you know, I have to be really certain of this. And if, and if I'm not absolutely certain, if I start to experience doubts, maybe I've lost my salvation. Maybe I never was saved to begin with. Uh, maybe something's going wrong in my life. Maybe God won't answer my prayers. Maybe um, somebody won't be healed. And Greg Boyd said that he, he came around to this idea of writing this book on this subject because he was um, sitting in a group at one point, and I'll probably get the details wrong, but it's in the book, and he was in a, a circle of people. They were praying for somebody who was on, you know, on maybe on their deathbed. You know, they've been in a car accident or something. A relatively young person, and they might die. And so they were praying, and they were they were going with this idea that, hey, look, we've got to be absolutely certain. We've got to name it and claim it. We've got to be sure of this without wavering, because if there is any lack of certainty that God is going to heal him, then our prayers might not be answered, and, and he'll die. And Greg Boyd says he was sitting there, he was thinking to himself, this is so weird. Like, I've always believed this, but it's like there's a gun. It's almost like God's got a gun to our friend's head, and he's saying, you better be certain enough, because if you're not certain enough, um, he dies. If you're certain enough, he lives. As if their friend's life depended on how certain, how psychologically certain they could be about this. Um, and that, that is just so odd, right? And that is really odd. Well, why do people come away with this sort of an idea? Where do they get these ideas? Well, there are passages of Scripture when not placed in their proper historical context or rightly understood in terms of original languages, you might come away with something like this. Uh, Greg Boyd calls this the certainty-seeking model. So he says, in this certainty-seeking model, when Jesus said, according to your faith, let it be done to you, Matthew 9.29, he was saying, the more certain you are that God, will do, uh, that God will do things, the more you'll see God do those things. So too, when the man said to Jesus, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief in Mark 9.24, within this paradigm, the man was asking, Lord, I can only hit the faith puck 
a little way up the faith pole, but please help me to ring the certainty bell. We're going to come back to that analogy in just a minute. Along the same lines, when Jesus praised the centurion for having great faith in Matthew 8.10, the certainty-seeking model would have us understand that Jesus was praising his psychological certainty that Jesus could and would do what he needed him to do. By contrast, when Jesus reprimanded the disciples for having little faith, Matthew 14.31, he was, according to this model, expressing his anger that they wavered in their certainty about what he could and would do. So how should these passages rightly be understand? How should these passages rightly be understood? Well, there are two things in play here. On the one hand, the word faith, and on the other hand, the word belief. And as I've said repeatedly on this channel, faith is not just believing what you know ain't so. It's not just believing without evidence. Faith is trust. Faith is loyalty. Um, uh, and you can have trust and loyalty in Jesus even if you're experiencing doubts. So Greg Boyd uh, describes it like this. Belief is an opinion about something or someone, while faith is a willingness to commit to a course of action on the basis of our belief. Salvation is rather like entering into a marriage-like covenantal relationship with God through Jesus Christ by exercising faith. Whereas one might measure beliefs in terms of how certain or uncertain a person feels, the measure of faith is simply about how a person is how faithful a person is in living out the covenantal relationship they have with the Lord. Now, that doesn't result in a works-based type salvation where it's like um, you're only exercising faith if you're doing enough works. But it's more like um, if, you're really, if you really have faith, um, if, you're, if you really trust and are loyal to Jesus, you're going to do what Jesus says. It doesn't mean you won't ever sin, but you're going to be attempting to live the Christian life to do what your, your master would want you to do. And you can do that. You can live the Christian life the same if you have absolute certainty or if you are experiencing some doubts, you can still live that faith life out in spite of that. So you have to understand though that distinction, that belief is an opinion about something or someone, while faith is a willingness to commit to a course of action on the basis of our belief. And there are many stories in the Bible of incredible heroes of faith who experienced times of um, immense doubt. And so this is all very important, I think, to understand. And when you plug those words into this, to these passages, you just it just doesn't it just doesn't come out the the same way. You, you get I think a more biblical understanding of what faith and belief is actually all about. So I think that's really important. And so the analogy that Boyd gives for this, and by the way, for those of you that know the work of Greg Boyd, I've got some major differences with Greg Boyd about some things that I think are very important secondary doctrinal issues. But I think that where he speaks the truth, he speaks the truth. And here he gives a great analogy. He says, it's like um, at the fair or something. You know those games where you have like the big mallet and you hit the mallet down on the thing and, and then the puck goes up the thing and you're trying to get it all the way up to hit the bell at the top. And so people are trying to hit this thing and get it all the way up to hit the, you know, the, the faith bell in our analogy here. So it's like every Christian is like somebody trying to hit that thing and get that puck as far up as they can because if they can't get it all the way to the faith bell, well then maybe God's not going to answer our, our prayers or maybe um, our friend's going to die or maybe... Uh, you know, maybe my, the people I'm praying for who are sick, their life depends on whether I can exercise enough psychological certainty to hit that bell. And uh, that's just not what, that doesn't sound like God, does it? And that's not what I don't think the best explanation of what the Bible is giving us. So where this comes back around is, I think that because, I think Boyd's right, that because people have this understanding of what, um, this, this misunderstanding of, of certainty, they think then that if I don't have absolute like certainty about the truth of Christianity, if I ever experience any doubts at all, 
That could mean that I'm not saved anymore, or it could mean I was never saved, or it could mean all these other horrible things. And since the stakes are so high on the level of your eternal salvation, then you think you can get that person to go out and talk to someone who's not a believer and use apologetics? Absolutely not, because the stakes are too high, and I might experience doubt, and then where would I be? I might be in hell. Now, frankly, I think if you ask random church people, is that really what you think? Most of them are going to say, no, of course that's not really what I think. But these are the the under-the-surface kind of fears that I think are present there, and people do not want those kind of beliefs upset. And so I do think that's a relevant concern. So while much of the apologetics world might be focused on, and I have been, let's get the right material into their hands, let's let's encourage them about the importance of this and and how important it is to reach others for Christ because they need to get saved and you don't want them to go to hell and you you want to be able to do this and defend it because, you know, all these kind of things, they're sitting there thinking, and, 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 and we're trying to hit them also with, and listen, you've got to have confidence. Is it that you're worried, you're, you're embarrassed if you don't know the answers? That is a part of it for a lot of people. But the reality is that's not the entirety of it. It may not be that they have pro- a problem with public speaking or talking about controversial stuff. It might be they're worried about self-preservation in this regard. And so I think that is a relevant concern. But it, sp- but it springs from a misunderstanding about what it means to really be a Christian and what faith and belief and certainty is all about. Now, I, am, uh, I, I use a Christian apologetics methodology that is called classical apologetics. There is a type of Christian apologetics called presuppositional apologetics, and yesterday I had a two-hour conversation with one of my good friends, a uh, wonderful guy. I won't name him because I'm going to tell you what I think uh, where I think he would agree with me, on, and if, he, if I'm wrong, I, you know, I, I don't want to have called his name and give him a bad reputation. Uh, for agreeing with this bald-headed bearded guy. But I was talking with for two hours with this guy yesterday, he's a presuppositionalist, and we were talking about certainty. And among presuppositionalists, you can have what is known as Cartesian certainty. Now, this becomes important. What is Cartesian certainty? Cartesian certainty, uh, for Rene Descartes, who thought, he was trying to figure out, what can I know for certain? And by certain, I don't mean colloquially. Like, if you ask me, are you sure that um, the external world is real? Like, that I can trust my senses more or less that the world out there is real. I'm going to say, yeah, I'm sure of that. Okay, colloquially, I'm certain of that. But in a very um, epistemologically academic, specific sense, do I have Cartesian certainty about certain things? Now, that is a different question. Because what we mean there is something you know, and it is is like impossible to doubt. Okay, so Descartes was trying to figure that out. So he got down to where he figured out, okay, if, if I... One thing I can know for sure without doubting is that I exist, because even if the external world isn't real and, and, and all that, I know that I am experiencing existence right now, so I must exist. Um, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, right? So he, know, he knew that much, and then he tried to build out from that to God. But the thing about it is, he could know that much. Here's the problem that others have pointed out after Descartes, and that is that even in coming to that conclusion— about his own existence, he still is trusting in his reasoning capacity to make that cognitive connection that if I'm thinking, then that must mean that I exist. So that means that he thinks, he would have to think that he has absolute certainty that he can trust his reasoning. But of course, he can't have that level of certainty. So he can't even have certainty about his own existence because to get there, he would have to trust his own reasoning with an absolute sense of Cartesian certainty. So what does that tell you? Well, it tells you that this idea of Cartesian certainty, frankly, is unnecessary, um, I think. Now, presuppositionalists will say you can, you can actually get there. 
um, on their understanding of, of this methodology, they would say, okay, epistemologically, we start with what we call the proximate starting point, which is our ability to reason, right? We do have to start there, that's true. But, uh, and in that sense, there's something circular about this. But uh, we have an ultimate starting point, and that ultimate starting point, it, not chronological, but our ultimate starting point is God. And since ultimately we see that God is the, is the uh, reason why the universe is intelligible, and he's the grounds of intelligibility, well, even though our proximate starting point was reason, that's our ultimate starting point, and we find that because that's ulti- the ultimate reality, then we can have Cartesian certainty about God's existence and um, the gospel and maybe a few other things, all right? Now, um, if you see problems with that, I do too. The problem that I see with it, frankly, is that if your proximate starting point where you kind of have to start is with your reason, and you can't be 100% certain about that, even if you get to this concept that you're saying is your ultimate starting point of God, you still got there via this proximate starting point of your reason. So I see a problem there, okay? But let's table that for a minute. So I want to say there are some presuppos- well, most of your presuppositionalists are going to say you can have this Cartesian certainty, this beyond doubting about God and the gospel and that sort of thing. Um, they will say that, but but I think that the sensible presuppositionalists, like my friend who I spoke with and argued with for two hours yesterday about this, would agree with me about what I'm about to say now. <clears throat> it doesn't mean you're not a Christian if you do experience doubt. If you're like me and you think that that kind of Cartesian certainty, it, you know, it can't be had, or at least most of the time can't be had, you understand that we're not saying I can't be sure of the truth of Christianity. It's just that I can't have a level of certainty that Descartes thought that uh, he had about his own existence that is so um, academic and so out there that it's almost like, uh, you know, not that helpful, right? So the the point that I want to make here is, so doubt, um, the presupp- my presuppositionalist friends would not say that doubt, is, the person who's, the Christian who's doubting is therefore not a Christian, they wouldn't, even they wouldn't confirm the things that some Christians are afraid are true, right? So, so in that sense, um, what we need to do as, as Christians and as church leaders is to make sure that people are aware of that. But so to back up some of what, I want to, what I've just said, um, or to have someone put it another way, let's look at this statement from William Lane Craig from 2019. Christians exhibit a wide range of attitudes toward the Christian faith when it comes to their certainty about the Christian faith. Some Christians have deep 100% certainty, or so they say, about the truth of the Christian faith. Other Christians really struggle. Uh, They wrestle with doubt that plagues them, and yet they cling tenaciously to Christian faith. And then there's every uh, position in between uh, those two. And I think that it's important to understand that certainty is just a psychological property or state. It's just the property of being firmly convinced of something. And as such, certainty is really unrelated to truth. You can be absolutely certain about something It turns out to be false. Uh, When my son was 17 years old, he had this problem a lot. Trust me, Dad, he'd say, and then it would turn out to be wrong. So certainty 
isn't any guarantee of truth. And similarly, doubt and uncertainty is no indication of error. Uh, there can be certain truths, like, say, a complex mathematical equation, which is necessarily true, and yet we're not certain we've done the calculation right. We're not free of any doubt that this might be the case. So what I want you to get out of this is certainty, our, our level of confidence about something, um, is, a, is a psychological thing with us. It doesn't affect whether Christianity is true or not. Um, and doubt doesn't make it any less true. Certainty doesn't make it more true. Doubt doesn't make it any less true. And so that's an important thing, I think. And like he says, there's been Christians who have claimed 100% Cartesian certainty all the time. And then there are people who experience, uh, you know, uh, doubts on the level that, that they wouldn't be able to say they have Cartesian certainty. Um, but let's let's move forward and let's take a look now. I, I want you to hear this from this is the guy whose book I, I read to you a bit from and was talking about the um, benefit of the doubt. This is Greg Boyd. Here's what Greg Boyd has to say. Several years ago, I was approached by this dear lady at the end of a church service where I preached, and um, she shared with me that she's a passionate follower of Jesus, loves Jesus with all of her heart, but she really struggles to believe that some of the stories in the Bible are really God's word. Some of the stories just don't strike her as historical. They seem more legendary. And other stories, she thought, just are too immoral to be God's word. And then she looked at me with tears in her eyes, and she said, do you think I can be saved despite my weak faith? She was like in terror over this. My heart just broke for her. The assumption behind her question is that a person's faith is as strong as they are certain. A person's faith is as strong as they are free of doubt. And her assumption was that her salvation hung on remaining sufficiently certain of every story in the Bible. This is how I think most people more or less think about faith today. And yet, I think it's a profoundly unbiblical model of faith, and in fact, it's doing us a lot of harm. See, in this model of the faith, becoming a Christian isn't just about developing a relationship with Jesus. It's about embracing this whole package of beliefs and trying to become convinced of this whole package of beliefs, including every story of the Bible. Uh, with this model of faith, the church becomes a gathering of people who are trying to suppress their doubts to convince themselves that all their beliefs are true. It becomes a community of people who are, are afraid of really dealing with the tough questions and, and admitting any kind of ambiguity. It becomes a community of people who are, are afraid to really try to get on the inside and understand the perspectives of people who disagree with them. Because doing that might unsettle their own certainty. And you can see why thoughtful, more skeptically minded unbelievers today wouldn't find anything attractive about that model of faith or about that. Yeah, so th this is, again, like, I've got to, I've got to, and this poor lady he's talking about, and I've encountered people like that, that if I can't hit the mallet on the thing and make the faith puck go all the way to the bell, then maybe I'm not really a Christian. And frankly, what I see happening a lot of times is when I look at, I've been watching now these atheist deconversion stories for uh, at least a year on YouTube, just people that don't have... I have really small YouTube channels that maybe their deconversion story is one of only a few videos they have, and they're not a big YouTuber. But I, I've listened to a lot of those, and what I find so often is there, there's often this, this uh, there was you know one little doubt, and then the whole thing came tumbling down. Or one little doubt, and then I threw out the whole thing. You know, I, if, I guess, you know, they, they take a 
particular view of Genesis, and if six-day creationism isn't true, well, then Christianity is false, and, they, and, and it's, it's straight out the door. Now, I think most of them would say, no, I tried to look at some materials, and I tried to see what Christians have to say, but uh, we're going to get to why that can still be problematic if you don't talk to other Christians about these concerns and, and really have a support group around you, because um, one of the places that you go running when you start having doubts and you're afraid to talk to other Christians about it is you run to the internet, and despite my best efforts and the best efforts of other Christian YouTubers and other Christian resources, YouTube is dominated still by skepticism and, and secular voices, and so what you're going to get there is um, you're going to get a message that almost has, it has very little counter to it per capita, at least currently. Now, we're trying to do something about that, but that's a, that's a major problem. And so what happens is then you, you can have one little doubt, and then you're, you're almost straight out the door, and that is a major problem. Whereas uh, the Christian faith is very open to discussions and doubts and uh, you know, asking God these deep questions in prayer and wrestling and struggling with them, and and uh, you know, it's it's a it's it's not it's not that you have to have this Cartesian certainty all the time, and that's very important. And so let's get to that extra issue about having a support group around you because I want you to hear what William Lane Craig again has to say here in this video. Well, I think it's important to go to God with your doubts and to. Be honest with him. As you say, the psalmist expressed these openly rather than trying to stuff it and hide it. And I think also it's very important for people to be able to find others that they can talk to about these. Many people who leave the church say that the reason they left was because they didn't feel that they could be honest and open about the doubts that they had and the struggles. Okay, now I want you to hear that. A lot of the people that leave the church say it's because they couldn't, they didn't feel like they could be open and honest about what the, the, the concerns they had. they had. And so they were just stuffing them down inside until they became self-destructive. So a person needs to get into some sort of a, a group um, or circle where these things can be discussed honestly. I think Gary... Yeah, so, so you want to be able to talk about it with others. Now, let me give you an example. Uh, in uh, genetically modified skeptic's testimony, this is what he said. When he began to experience these doubts, this is what he says he did with them. I chose to push any thoughts of doubt I had out of my head any time they arose. I decided to rely on faith rather than confront any challenges to my beliefs. By summer of 2015, B decided to dedicate themselves to teaching others about and Okay, so she, he goes on from here. He, he parallels his story of deconversion with his awareness about the problems with essential oils or something. But he buried his he buried his doubts. Now later he explored them, but but we would encourage you not to bury those doubts, not to hide your head in the sand like that. Like Craig says, we would encourage you to get into a small group, to get into to start talking about these things. And that means that as church leaders, church leaders have got to be open to, I know our church is, open to having those questions asked. In fact, frankly, I you know, I think there's a lot of stuff that gets said because it sounds good, like, well, I couldn't ever raise that question in my church because we're not allowed to ask those kind of questions, or, or it'd be, I'd be shamed for asking those kind of questions. Listen, I've been in hundreds of churches over the past 15 years, literally hundreds of churches. I can't think of a single church I've ever been in, ever, that would not be open to you asking difficult questions and talking about them with you. Now, there are varying degrees of 
how uh, capable those different congregations would be in answering them, but, but they would be open to that. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because there is actually some study that's been done on religious belief. The Journal of the Scientific Study of Religion, The Doubting Process, a longitudinal study of the precip- precipitants and consequences of religious doubt. And in this article, they said that these... Uh, the data revealed that over time, people who encountered more negative interaction with fellow congregants have more doubts about religion, whereas more spiritual support and greater involvement in prayer groups are associated with less religious doubt. So if you have negative experiences in your congregation, you're going to be more prone to doubt. And if you have support and, and spiritual support and prayer groups and things like that, you're going to experience less of these kind of doubts. Not necessarily in every case, but it's just a trend here. But here's what I really want you to hone in on. The findings further indicated that people who encountered more negative interaction are more likely to suppress religious doubts, but people who attend Bible study groups are more likely to seek spiritual growth when faced with doubt. So here's what that means. That means if you're the kind of person that begins experiencing doubt and you put your head in the sand or you keep it to yourself, then those doubts are going to persist, whereas if you were to express those doubts to a Bible study group, a group of Christian friends, and seek out those answers, then, then you, can, you can have those, that's not as big of a deal. You can experience spiritual growth, as a matter of fact. And so what I think often happens is people think, Number one, people think, if I don't have certainty, then I'm not, I might not really be a Christian. I'm scared. And so they might not want to talk about it to, to other people in the church. And um, especially if they've had negative experiences with people in the church, they're not going to want to talk about it with people in the church. And uh, as a result, they, they hide it to themselves, and then later it all comes bubbling back to the surface. Whereas, on the other hand, if someone would uh, be open to talking about their doubts, uh, no matter what someone might think about them uh, because of that, Uh, they can actually see spiritual growth out of this, and it goes the other way. So all of that to say, I think that there's, in the journal... I think that in the journal articles, there's good data about this. I see. I think we're seeing things uh, from from some of these Christian communicators, like uh, Greg Boyd and his own uh, work on this, and William Lane Craig. They kind of back some of this up, and I think we're seeing that that makes sense of what we're hearing, even from the skeptics and atheists that we're dealing with. So back to Pine Creek. Do I agree with Pine Creek? I I don't think he's right that pastors are willing to admit this by and large. Although there are some who will say that, um, that po- there might be some problem with apologetics or something. Uh, he'll have to show me who that is. But uh, I think that on the part of some of the church people, there is this concern, but it's because of a misunderstanding of faith, a misunderstanding of belief, a misunderstanding of certainty, a misunderstanding of salvation. And I think instead, if we would be willing to say, okay, look, doubts are going to happen. They're just a part of what it means to be human, whether you're religious or not then I think what we would see as a result is more of a willingness to investigate some of this stuff and get the answers. Now, you might say, but why? Why should they do that? I mean, even if it's not an issue of salvation, why should they put themselves in positions that might result in getting their hands dirty and occasionally there might be some doubt? Well, let's go back to what Pine Creek had to say and let's continue with him because I think the second thing that he says is just completely wrong. Let's hear it. They just want the hope, the 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 gift. They just want eternal security. They just want um, that in their darkest hour that there's someone there helping them. They don't need no stinking apologetics. And once you start talking uh, apologetics and, and bringing up issues that they had no clue about prior, uh, 
they say, well, wait a minute, I should be worried about this? I thought everything was great, but you're bringing up all these potential problems. Okay, hold on a second. That, to my mind, is... I don't know how you could... I mean, I don't know how you could say this. Maybe this is part of the problem of a live stream. If you would sit back and think this through a little bit. Do you think that in our culture, with our television programs, with our movies, with our music, with everything that's going on, with the internet, do you really believe that people are not haven't thought about these things or haven't encountered the challenges to the Christian faith? Now, they not might not be able to, like, you know, break down... Uh, you know, all the Christian YouTube channels or talk about Sam Harris's free will or, you know, uh, bust out the philosophical argument from divine hiddenness or something. But the best argument, and I think a lot of atheists would agree with this, one of the best arguments you guys have got is the problem of suffering, the problem of evil, the arguments from evil, specifically the evidential argument from evil. And Christians will think about that without ever encountering a secular message ever, because everyone will experience suffering and they'll suddenly think, wait a minute, where is God in the midst of my suffering? But on top of that, they're encountering it in the culture. They're encountering it from every direction. What do you mean uh, that the Christian is sitting out there thinking, I thought everything was fine. You mean there are challenges? Of course these people know there are challenges. I mean, I just think that that is, and that kind of leads into why I think this is mistaken. He thinks that by doing apologetics and by making apologetics more well-known, that people are going to experience more doubt, they're going to get their hands dirty, and they're going to leave the faith. That may happen to some people, uh, but here's the, here's the reality of it. They're going to encounter these messages. They're going to encounter them in the culture. And so where is the best place for them to hear about them from our perspective as Christians? The best place for them to hear about them is in the church and hear the answers to those questions. And that may cause a little bit of doubt, but then they get the support. They get the people there to, to come around them to help with that. As we've seen, the journal articles indicate that that actually results in spiritual growth. That's where it should be taking place rather than out there in the culture where, yeah, once, once you, you're afraid to talk about it with the Christians, and then by the time you go investigate it elsewhere, you, you've gone full tilt. So, so this part of the hypothesis, I think, just doesn't work. What should happen is we should recognize, and I think it's why 100% of the respondents to the questionnaire that I sent to all the major regions of the United States and outside of the United States, 100% of them said, no, apologetics is important. And why is that? It's because they know their people are going to encounter this stuff. They know they're already going to encounter it in the culture. And so there's no sense in trying to hide these realities from them. Um, instead, we present them with good apologetic stuff. What we need to do instead is to remove this unnecessary fear that if I don't have Cartesian certainty all the time, then I'm not a good Christian or I'm lost. That is simply unbiblical and possibly unattainable, frankly. And so as a result, we need, to, we need to be aware of this, and we need to make sure that we don't ever send that message. And this is where I think the sensible presuppositionalist friends I have, like my close friend I spoke with yesterday— would agree with me that what we ought to do is encourage people that that's the case. That, listen, if you experience doubts, that's okay, and you can talk to us about those doubts. And we need to have a biblical understanding of what faith and belief is, and we need to talk about those things together. And we want to talk about that. We want to be a people who explore these things as a community of faith. Let's see if Pine Creek says anything else I want to talk about. And, and sure, you're giving solutions to these problems, but I didn't even know these problems existed. And what do you know? I didn't even know these problems existed. I mean, what problem are you talking about there? You can't be talking about the question about did the resurrection really happen uh, because any thinking person who's ever heard the story thinks, well, does that, uh, you know, 
that's an amazing story. You know, did it really happen? Um, the problem of evil you can't be talking about. Are you ta- are you ta- Divine hiddenness kind of goes along with the problem of evil. So are you talking about something like the omniscience paradox? I mean, what are you talking about here? To my mind, this is, this is people are going to encounter this stuff. You know, they start diving into this stuff for themselves and say, oh, okay, I don't buy this solution. And here's another problem that I just uncovered when I was trying to research this. Absolutely right. That is what happens when they bury their heads in the sand and don't talk about those doubts. And then after it bubbles to the surface, because here's the thing, those doubts are going to be there. And we can, we can maybe overcome some of those doubts, but there's always going to be doubts. Well, we, we can experience spiritual growth in the midst of doubts. But if you bury your head in the sand, those doubts are going to come back with a vengeance. And when they do, you might spend all night going down a YouTube Google hole and rat hole on the Internet and find something like Pine Creek's channel, you know, <laughs> or, find, or find one of these other characters. And, and then there's no, there's no, you know, really well-educated Christian voice to respond to what your concerns are. It makes much more sense, if you're experiencing doubt, to present it in the right context where you can see spiritual growth, like the journal articles indicate. All right, so uh, that's kind of what I wanted us to get there. Here, here's the message for you. I've experienced doubts. Now, there are times in my life where um, I've never heard a voice. I've never heard an audible voice from God. I've never felt God physically touch me. I've never uh, uh, you know, seen something obviously supernatural. Now, but, but I've said many times on this program, I have had an experience uh, many experiences in in worshipful environments where I, I do I do think in those moments I had something really close to Cartesian certainty. I remember one specific time I've talked about a few times before where I was going through extreme uh, uh, despair, and in a moment of prayer, it, it was as close to a physical manifestation of God as I've ever experienced. And um, I remember in that moment thinking, Braxton, I actually thought you have Cartesian certainty right now. Uh, okay, so so I'm not saying that, but but here's what I do want you to recognize: if you don't have that all the time, I don't either. It's fine. But here's the: it doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It doesn't mean oh, I guess maybe I'm an unbeliever now, because there's a difference between doubt and unbelief, and that's very important. But here's the other side of that thing: doubt exists on the other side as well. Don't you ever listen to an atheist that does that tells you they don't ever experience doubt about worldview items? If they don't, frankly, I'm not sure that's healthy. And secondly, I, I'm not sure I believe that. There is doubt. I have a video on um, the nature of hell from a few months ago. And um, the, we, at the very beginning, we, taught, we take a look at Cosmic Skeptic and about five or six other atheists on programs saying that it is still a regular thing that they experience occasionally a fear of hell. Uh, what is that? That's a worldview doubt. That's a doubt about whether they are in the right boat now, worldview-wise. Um, and now, if you're, if you're trying to pick your doubts, frankly, this is a little bit of a Pascal's wager sort of thing. I'm not giving you this is a reason to be a Christian or this is why Christianity is true, nothing like that. So you can keep all your fallacies to yourself. But, um, but, but I will tell you this, based on the doubts, you're going to have doubts either way. And on the other side of this thing, the doubts that you'll have, the stakes are a whole lot higher, man. The stakes are a whole lot higher. I, I'm over there with a fear of hell, even after I'm now an atheist. I mean, that's, that's surprising. Um, but here, uh, we can see spiritual growth, but it means that you got to talk these things out. 
So I think there's some of you out there that wrestle with this, and some of you who are on this channel, and you're, you're always looking for absolute certainty. I've noticed it with, um, with uh, atheist arguments. It's, it's almost like, and Christians sometimes do this too, it's almost like if the argument doesn't give us this absolute certain slam dunk, we can find any way to wiggle out of it. It was like on the last episode when uh, a probabilistic argument was being brought by Max Baker Heitch, and Alex O'Connor was like, yeah, but couldn't I technically get out of the teeth of this thing if I could just show that it's at least somewhat possible, it's just at least possible that maybe evolution resulted in this accidental byproduct of, of aboutness? Okay, and Max's answer is no. That's not, because this is not, you're looking for some chink in this slam dunk deductive argument. That's not what this is. This is a probabilistic argument. And I see this a lot of times. There's like this, uh, if I can find any little way to wiggle out of the force of this argument, oh, now I don't have to adopt that argument anymore. That's not what we should be doing. We should be looking at what's probably true. What's, what's probably true, and I'm going to go with that. Will I ever have certainty? No, probably not. I may always have doubts. But I'm going to go with what's probably true, even though I have doubts. And when I have doubts, it doesn't mean I'm not a believer anymore, Christians. It means I'm experiencing doubt. And this can actually be a good time for me to share those doubts with other Christians and experience some spiritual growth. So here's what I want you to do. If you're a Christian out there and you occasionally experience doubt, take a deep breath. Let it out. It's okay. That's going to happen. It's natural. Happens to atheists. Happens to everyone. It's just a part of life. It doesn't mean we have need to have an existential crisis about this. The evidence is powerful enough that um, there's... Uh, I think Christianity is the most defensible worldview, and I think you can rest in that. But there's another side to this thing that I want to say before we go, and that is I like what William Lane Craig often says. He says that it's, a, it's by apologetics and the production of evidence that we can show that Christianity is true, but it's by the work of the Spirit in our lives that we can know that Christianity is true. So while I would never ask you to become a Christian merely on the basis of my personal um, anecdotal experience of God, my personal subjective conscious experience. But I can tell you that are Christians that think about that. Think about it. There is really good evidence, and in times of doubt, that helps. But, um, but you also have a personal relationship with the Lord. There are moments in your life, like it was for me, where you're like in a moment of worship or in a moment of prayer. I, I do, I, right now, I, I'm, there may still be some lingering doubts, but gosh darn it, it it's, it's there. It's, 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 I know it's true. And um, that's important. That's important to, to remember. All right, so uh, wish I got to go to that cool house where all those apologist crew were hanging out, like the Apologetics Avengers. I was invited. It didn't work out. Maybe next time. And I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.